pleasure to welcome Ben Crew to Oxford today to give our uh, second 50th anniversary lecture of this term. And Ben, as many of you will know, has published widely in the field of prison studies, where his 2009 book, The Prisoner Society, is a classic account of men's imprisonment. Ben works at the Institute of Criminology in Cambridge, where he's deputy director of the <coughs> Cambridge Prisons Research Centre and the director of the MST Penology Programme. Ben's prisons research covers a range of topics, from long-term imprisonment, which he'll be speaking about today, to masculinity, to a comparison between the public and private sector, and to investigations of staff culture and experiences. In his work, Ben combines mixed methods to try to understand in more detail the experiences and the impact of incarceration. Currently, Ben's working on a five-year European Research Council Consolidator Grant, um, which is called Penal Policymaking and the Prisoner Experience, a Comparative Analysis. Uh, and that research is a comparison between prisons in England and Wales and prisons in Norway. Um, according to his website, it will involve studies of penal policymaking and the penal field, the experiences of female prisoners, imprisoned sex offenders, and prisoners in the most secure part of each jurisdiction's prison system. That research, as I understand it, has begun, but... Sort of. Sort yeah. of, sort of begun. Uh, but we're obviously going to have to wait some time for its outcome. And instead, today, Ben is going to be sharing with us findings from his ESRC-funded project on long-term imprisonment. Thank you very much. Uh, it's amazing the stuff that you say on your website uh, about yourself and then realise you actually have to fulfil those promises. Um, Thank you, Mary. I'm delighted to be here. It's very nice to see so many people. Um, I'm going to start by reading out um, this extract, uh, which is from a letter sent to me by one of the participants in the study that I'm going to be talking to, about today, which is a study of um, prisoners serving very long life sentences. Um, so this is Dan um, in the early years of a life sentence with a 15-year tariff, and he says... All of one's plans and life goals are very much put on hold until one's re-emergence into the light of day. Perhaps the better analogy is of a cocoon. We are trapped in a chrysalis while the outside world rushes on without us, yet within the chrysalis a metamorphosis is taking place. We change as people, we achieve certain things removed from the real world. And so what emerges is a transformed individual for better or worse. One can never truly be the same or simply take off from where we left off. Whatever happens in here, I will be catching up on all those lost years of my youth. Think of all the things I should be doing now. Establishing my career, getting married, having a family, settling down, and amassing all the various accoutrements of living, a home, a car, etc. And uh, Dan was, um, was not a particularly typical prisoner, um, so this is a particularly eloquent quote. But what he expressed was pretty typical so a, a fairly profound reflection on how it feels to exist both within and between two worlds, the world of the prison and the world outside, for such a sustained period. And my, I guess my main argument today is that um, long-term imprisonment is best understood as a gradual coming to terms with a series of dislocations from the prisoner's sense of self, from his or her previous life, and from the future that he or she imagined. And my starting point is the 1968 Radzinovitz report on the regime for long-term prisoners 
in conditions of maximum security. And the report's almost 50 years old, but it's quite useful as a, um, as a kind of contrast to contemporary concerns. So uh, long-term prisoners were defined as those serving a sentence of over four years. That's actually a fairly standard definition in lots of European research. Sentences of more than 10 years were considered very long, and only two prisoners at the time had been in custody for a continuous period of more than 15 years. But sentence lengths of 15 years or more are now so common that they hardly register. So um, at the end of 2010, which was just before we started this study, there were over 2,300 prisoners serving indeterminate sentences with tariffs, so that's the minimum amount of time that you serve, of 15 years or more. And in the previous decade, the number of offenders who received a tariff of that kind increased by 240%. And just to give you a sense of how sentence lengths have changed, um, this, this, is, this comes from a freedom of information request put in by someone in the law faculty at Cambridge that I now steal. Um, and it just I, the pattern is just very clear here. So this is for... This is the minimum term for prisoners serving um, mandatory life sentences. It excludes whole life tariffs. Um, But you can see a steady but very significant rise over a relatively short period of time. So all of this means that a growing number of prisoners are serving sentences that a generation ago were not just very rare, but were also considered um, barely survivable. And this development has generated quite a lot of um, concern and discussion among practitioners. So um, the former chief inspector of prisons warned that high security establishments and young offender institutions were becoming less stable, more difficult to run and possibly more unsafe as a result of holding a growing proportion of young men serving very long sentences. This is a quote who may feel they have little to lose. And in 2011, Michael Spur, who's the chief executive of NOMS, made very similar observations about the risks of a younger, longer-term population who, as he said, don't buy into the system with the risk that that can lead to concerted disorder. So these are really concerns about control and order. Um, But but obviously there's a broader set of um, questions about what it's like to be subjected to the most extreme sanction of the state. Uh, How are these sentences psychologically survivable? And what does it mean to live some of the most formative decades of one's life behind bars? And the answer is we we don't really know, um, because although in the 1970s there was a a kind of heyday period of research on um, long-term imprisonment, there's relatively little literature um, since that time. And as I've explained, um, that we're now giving out these very long sentences with um, much more frequency. So what I want to talk about today is a study that I've been conducting with um, two colleagues, Susie Hulley and Serena Wright, on prisoners serving um, life sentences with tariffs of 15 years or more, but who were sentenced when they were aged 25 or under. And our starting questions were, What are the problems that these prisoners encounter and how do they deal with those problems? Second, how do they adapt socially to the environment? So how do you construct a life for yourself, um, uh, a sort of social and relational world? And also, how do these prisoners perceive the legitimacy 
of their situation, though I'm not going to talk about the third um, matter a great deal. And uh, Mary very nicely said that I'm a mixed methods researcher. I'm I'm much more instinctively qualitative, but um, but very much an advocate of mixed methods research. So in this study, we, we gave out a survey, which I'll talk about more in a second, to all of the prisoners who met our criteria, um, who were willing, uh, in all of the prisons that we went to. Uh, and for the interviews with the men, we deliberately um, selected people for interview who were at particular stages of their sentence. So either early, which um, we defined as within the first four years, mid, which was kind of c- cutting the tariff in two, plus or minus one year, and then prisoners who were near to... Um, to prisoners who were near to or beyond their tariff point. Now, that could mean anything from a year before the tariff to 15 years beyond the tariff, and that that group was very um, (coughs) disparate. Uh, Because there were so few women in the system who met our criteria, we tried to interview all of them, so we didn't bother with sampling by sentence stage. And this just gives a, a basic sense of some relevant numbers. So when we began the study, there were 803 men and 27 women in the population we were interested in. We interviewed 125 of the men and 21 of the women, and we collected surveys from 294 of the men and 19 of the women. And we went to 25 prisons overall, so across the spectrum, so ranging from high security um, down to open um, establishments and every security category in between. Uh, the survey that we uh, administered um, built on a research tool developed by Barry Richards in the 1970s when he studied long-term prisoners in the UK and the, the survey was then adopted by a handful of um, North American researchers in the 1980s um, I don't know if you'll be able to see this at the back but um, Richards devised these 20 problem statements And he asked prisoners to rate um, how often they experienced each of these problems and how easy or difficult they found it to deal with these problems. So it's a measure of frequency and solubility. And so we we took on Richards' questions. We changed one or two. So uh, there's one that was something like uh, feeling like worrying that you're going to become a vegetable or something like that. I can't remember where that... Oh, the second one here... That we, we changed the phrasing of some of these, um, and then we added um, 21 of our own. And we did this after spending a few weeks in HMP Gartry, which is a lifer prison, and it became clear to us that the, the, the set of problems that prisoners were describing to us were much broader than the ones that Richards had um, looked into. So some of the things we added reflect changes in the nature of imprisonment, particularly um, sort of the, the increase in the number of, in indeterminate sentences, the role of prison psychologists, and so on. But you'll see that some of the other problem statements are about issues that almost certainly were relevant in the 1970s, but just weren't on the radar of researchers or of, or of um, Richard. So things like thinking about the crime that you committed, feeling that you're losing contact with family and friends, prison officers making life harder, these are, these are not new issues. And I'm going to start um, just by briefly reporting some of the survey findings. And here you can see the five most um, severe problems reported um, in Richards' study, then another major study by Flanagan in the US, and then I've split this into the men and the women 
um, in our study. And problem severity is calculated by um, multiplying the scores for the frequency and the solubility of, um, of all of these problems. So everything up here, these are all problems that were experienced often and that were hard to resolve. Um, what you'll see is that, some, that there's quite a lot of consistency between these three studies or these four groups. So that missing somebody appears across all four studies and there's a number of other problems that you'll see feature in two or three um, of the studies. And that, that's obviously interesting in itself given the, the spans in time and geography between these studies. So I guess the obvious point is, is that it suggests that there are some burdens that seem more or less inherent to long-term confinement. Um, you'll also notice that the results for the men and the women in the study look rather different. And although I'm, I'm, I'm not going to dwell on that now, um, if anyone is desperate to ask a question later but doesn't know what they want to ask about, this would be a nice thing to ask about. So I'm trying to control my audience. Uh, and, and I just want to flash up as well some of the problems that were rated as relatively unsevere by our participants. And I, I have cherry-picked a little bit here. Um, famously, Gresham Sykes in the Society of Captives said, uh, the worst thing about prison is having to live with other prisoners. So I think it's quite striking that getting annoyed or irritated with other prisoners was ranked relatively low. So this is out of the... Uh, uh, 36 problems overall, um, and, or 38 perhaps, and, uh, and it was ranked fairly low by both the men and the women, and similarly issues like finding it hard to keep out of trouble, feeling worried about your personal safety, and prison officers making life harder were not experienced as highly severe relative to other concerns. And um, Notably, and this is something you should hang on to in your minds, these are largely social and relational issues. And uh, this graph just shows, here we've organised the individual problems into thematic dimensions. Um, just to give a clearer sense of the relative difficulty of particular types of problems. So, um, if you can't read it at the back, the one on the far left where the scores are highest is outside relationships... So that includes items like um, feeling that you're losing contact with family and friends and being afraid that someone you love or care about will die before you're released. Second along is thinking about the crime that you committed. That's a single item that didn't load statistically onto any others. I'll come back to that. And then uh, the third along is time, which includes things like um, thinking about the amount of time you might have to serve and feeling that you're losing the best years of your lives. And I'm going to return to these themes um, during the duration of the talk. But the thing I want to highlight here is um, that the, the green line is the results for the women, the red line is the results um, for the men. So it's, it's very, very clear that the women experienced every set of problems as significantly more severe than the men, statistically significantly more severe than the men, and um, even the problems that they experienced as least severe, so mental well-being, which is here, the women's score, 10.31, is higher than the men's scores on six of the dimensions. So we just get a, a very clear sense here that long-term imprisonment for women was acutely more painful um, than it was for the men. 
Let me move on just to note some of the patterns that we found when we split the analysis up according to sentence stage. Um, we'll soon be done with the tables and graphs, but they're important, I think, in just, just in setting up um, the, the, the discussion that's going to follow. And the study wasn't longitudinal. We are hoping to get some funding to follow people up, but what we were able to do was um, explore whether there were any differences between people's experiences according to the stage of the sentence that they were at. And we found three clear patterns. So first, problem severity was highest among the participants who were in the early sentence phase. Um, and it was lower for those in the middle or late phases, except for the problems that were specifically to do with release. Um, the red maybe doesn't show up very well. I, I've used colour here just to show up where the differences are statistically significant, but try to keep the, the table fairly clean. But the, the, pattern, the pattern is quite clear. So even though not, not all of the differences are significant, um, it, it's telling that with the exception of release anxiety, they all move in the same direction. So um, prisoners at later sentence stages reported a lesser degree of problem severity than those in the earlier stage. Second, we found that prisoners further into their sentences reported higher levels of emotional and psychological well-being than those in the earlier phases. So here you can see the percentage of prisoners agreeing or strongly agreeing, um, uh, sorry, agreeing or disagreeing with a selection of um, statements. And you can see that by sentence stage, an increasing proportion agreed or strongly agreed with a range of items about things like emotional intelligence, maturity, mental health, stability, and so on. And the, again, the differences are statistically significant, though we haven't shown that uh, the detail here. So just um, a couple of examples. So I am learning or have learned to deal with my emotions. 50% uh, agreed, 50% of those at the early stage agreed, but that goes up to over 80% at later stages. Um, the percentage agreeing with the statement, I am becoming or have become more polite and considerate towards others, that almost doubles as you go up sentence stages. And the same for um, I'm becoming or have become a better person overall. And then third, um, we find um, that prisoners further into their sentences were less committed to what prison sociologists often call inmate values. So again, just to give a couple of examples, um, while almost a third of prisoners um, at the early stage agreed with the item, a prisoner should always be loyal to another prisoner rather than staff. That, um, that figure is only 7% among late-stage prisoners. And while only 3% at the early stage agreed that it's sometimes OK to tell staff about another prisoner's business, among late-stage prisoners, that's um, 25%. So, so what we've got there is... A, is um, so, so, so among... Um, Prisoners at later sentence stages, lower problem severity, higher personal maturity or psychological health, and lower commitment to inmate values. And, and those findings are quite consistent with other studies that have used these kinds of surveys. Um, so, so, that, so it's a fairly consistent finding that problem severity goes down. And Robert Johnson uses a phrase, mature coping, to uh, convey the idea that prisoners develop um, uh, ways of uh, learning how to cope, including things like respect for others and self-sufficiency. And so all of this has led many scholars to conclude that long-term imprisonment 
is not especially damaging and that many prisoners, far from becoming prisonised or institutionalised, develop skills that might help them on release. I'm going to come back to that later, um, partly because uh, I don't think that's the right interpretation of the findings, and I think the qualitative data helps explain why in a rather complex way. So, so the point of putting these slides up, um, up front, is that it frames the discussion that's going to follow. And what's worth hanging on to is, first, the sense that prisoners learn to adapt, so they find ways of coping. Second, we get some sense that they feel themselves to be maturing emotionally. And third, we get a sense that their social commitments are rather loose. And what I want to do now is use the interview data to to explore in more detail the the transitions that I think prisoners are going through um, as they go through their sentences. And and I'm going to try, um, by the end, to explain, perhaps not fully, some of the trends that I've just described. Um, The other thing it's worth me saying is that the patterns that I'm going to describe now, it's not the case that they were universal, but they were remarkably consistent. So I will talk in fairly general terms from this point on. So... When they described the initial phase of their sentences, our participants communicated a number of things. First, the shock of receiving a sentence for murder, but also um, the sort of temporal vertigo that resulted from confronting a minimum sentence that was often longer than the number of years that they'd been alive. Um, So the reason we're using vertigo as a term is that what was often described to us was this sense that time kind of warped in front of you. So one prisoner said to me that his future flashed before his eyes, which I thought was a very powerful description. And the third theme here is intrusive recollections. So flashbacks, nightmares, a constant replaying of the the murder event and a kind of repetitive trauma about the brutality and the enormity of what they had participated in or witnessed. And then fourth, a kind of... of undirected anger, Um, sometimes anger about being given a sentence that the prisoner didn't feel that he or she deserved. Lots of our prisoners were convicted under um, joint enterprise, which again um, is something I could come back to later. But just as often these feelings of anger um, derived from feelings of underlying feelings of guilt or loss, so a kind of grief for the life that the prisoner um, had lost. So Reflecting back on his early months in prison, Curtis draws our attention to the connection between his sort of outward-directed anger and his feelings of unresolved shame. So he says, I was, um, I was taking my anger out on people. With the evidence, it was clear that I did it, but I didn't really want to admit it um, to myself at the time. And in this second quote, um, I think what Assad is describing here is the way that the anger that he directed towards himself was in the main about seeing the life that he had anticipated sort of evaporate. So he says, I I was angry when I got my sentence. I was really angry. I was angry with me. I was angry with how my life turned out. Deep down, I know I had a lot more potentially in my life to do. So much more. So much good with my life. And I think these quotes convey the kind of existential emotions of hopelessness and despair that were present across almost all of the accounts of the early months of the (coughs) sentence. The other thing that I think they um, communicate is the way that these prisoners um, reacted and adapted to their experiences. 
mainly through things like emotional numbing and dissociation. So this is returning to the slide I showed a minute ago. Maria says it wasn't real. Dan talks about the, the early months being an out-of-body experience. And I think two, two things are worth noting here. The first um, is that although some of what was described to us can be interpreted using the kind of conventional pains of imprisonment literature, the, the emotional content uh, of the interviews went far beyond those, um, the pains that typically feature in the research literature. And secondly, there's a sort of temporal dimension um, to, to these quotes. Um, the sense in various forms of not being fully in the present, or in the case of intrusive recollections, the sense that um, the present is being constantly uh, impinged on by memories from the past. And, and both of the points that I'm making are um, significant in our decision to um, conceptualise these early adaptations through the use of psychoanalytic um, concepts of suppression, denial and sublimation. So these are all sort of psychic manoeuvres that in some way repudiate the present. So, so one coping technique for prisoners was to try to, to suppress or block out their predicament, either just through the kind of power of the mind or through the pursuit of um, kind of chemical oblivion, so the use of drugs or alcohol. So Neil says, um, the less aware you are, the easier it is to deal with. Blank nothingness, that's what gets you through. That's how you survive. The second strategy, um, sublimation, involved prisoners channeling their feelings of guilt or despair into positive endeavours. And sometimes that meant um, kind of claiming back part of the life that they had hoped to lead by, um, by, by doing the things that they felt they would have done anyway, or engaging in sort of pseudo-legal activity, so appealing the sentence. So, so here Roger is reflecting back on the early years of his sentence, and he says you know, that for the first 10 years, appealing is another coping mechanism to get you through. And then the third strategy um, is, was denial, um, so the refusal to acknowledge the existence of the reality being faced. And denial took two forms. The first was denial of time. So that's a refusal to consider or, or an inability to consider the sentence in its entirety or a kind of blithe optimism about the number of years left to serve um, or the speed with which time would pass. So, so when early stage prisoners were asked how they managed time and the prospect of many years in prison, they would consistently say that, that to stop, prevent some form of mental breakdown, they chose not to think ahead, that they, they did their time day by day. So Carl says, I just take each day as it comes, because if you start thinking too far ahead, then it's a lot harder. And in contrast, Terence, in the second quote, um, his tone, his description of these decades ahead of him is, I think, very strikingly casual. So he says... I'll have another three or four years here. So he was in a high-security prison. Then there'll be close to 20 left. Then I'll be in Cat B. And before you know it, you're in DCAT. The, the second form of denial was denial of the offence. So a, a defence mechanism that I think holds at bay some of the painful realities of being convicted of murder. And of course, um, I'm not suggesting that none of our interviewees were not guilty. Only that I think that only that many of them reflecting back on their early years, talked about the functions of denial. So John says, 
uh, I didn't want to accept that I took a human life. I couldn't believe I could be that person. And Kelvin in the last quote here says, I couldn't just bear to say, yeah, I did it. Because obviously that night it wasn't just the one person that died. It, f- it, was, it felt like a part of me died as well. So I guess the question is, how, how, are we trying to, how do we understand what's going on here? And what I've tried to highlight is the presence of three intense emotional states, all of which I think are implied in the survey data too. So grief for the loss of an imagined future, and also for the set of social relations that one, um, that the, in which the prisoner is embedded. Shame, whether that's acknowledged or suppressed, um, about being involved in a serious murder. And also anger, either produced by um, feelings of unresolved shame or by feelings of illegitimacy about the sentence length or the conviction. And so to advance the argument, I want to map those emotions onto what I'm going to refer to as a, as a threefold form of dislocation. So dislocation from the world that the prisoner was in, a kind of existential dislocation from the prisoner's um, sense of who they are, that's linked to, the, to them having committed a murder or being involved in a murder, and then a kind of temporal dislocation, I'm not sure if that's quite the right term, but from the future that the prisoner had um, envisaged. And here the work of Margaret Archer has been extremely instructive. Many of you will know Margaret Archer is a social theorist. She has no interest in prisons at all. Her work is about structure and agency, and specifically the ways in which agents encounter social structures through modes of reflexivity. And she defines reflexivity as the kind of capacity to deliberate on our actions in relation to the social circumstances that we encounter. And Archer says... Um, that, importantly, the extent to which people are reflexive and the nature of their reflexivity varies as a result both of biographical experiences and um, social context. So so fundamental to her argument is that um, social transformation means that there's less congruence between the world that we grow up in and the situations that we come to encounter. And she says, in these situations of what she calls contextual discontinuity, traditional guidelines for action are unreliable. So we we can't function just through tacit knowledge or custom or habit. We have to make our way through the world. That's the name of one of her books, almost. um, Through internal deliberations of some sort. And Archer calls these internal conversations... Um, driven by what, by what she calls ultimate concerns, so that we, we think about, we're constantly monitoring, reflecting on ways in we, which we should act with our sort of end goals, um, a set of end goals that we define for ourselves in mind. And empirically, her work draws on interviews with university students. Um, And she does this to try to understand different modes of reflexivity and the different ways in which people rely on things that people like family members to shape their decision-making and also the different kinds of goals that people set for themselves. And the choice of university students is significant because university is that period of life when individuals often break away from their family life to some extent and begin to be confronted with a series of life decisions about what what kind of person they are, what kind of life they want to lead and so on. And 
the connection with um, the study that I'm describing is that long-term imprisonment represents a very extreme demonstration, not just of constraint, but also displacement from one life world to another. And so Arch's vocabulary of structure, agency, and these mediating processes, this internal conversation, offers, I think, a very useful way of thinking about um, how these long-term prisoners find ways of acting and adapting to this rupture in their circumstances, and also in their sense of self and their life possibilities. So I've already suggested that that prisoners in their early sentence stage um, felt completely overwhelmed by time, the amount of time that stretched ahead of them. And when we asked um, early stage prisoners how they thought about time or how they managed time, the phrases that came up very consistently were things like, I just take it as it comes or I I do it day by day. So this quote from one of our um, female interviewees captures a typical kind of response. So we say, how do you think about your time in here? I don't, I just don't think about it. Do you think about day to day, week to week? No. Do you plan at all? No. I take days as they come. I don't want to do none of that. And these are people with a lot of days to be taken day by day. But but this was a very common response. So interviewees saying they, they couldn't imagine the future or it was too painful for them to cast their minds that far ahead. Even Often they would say even tomorrow, so you know, even the very short-term future felt irrelevant, the same as today. And time in the present also felt meaningless to them. So the descriptions that were given of time and imprisonment um, drew on a consistent discourse of stasis, being stuck in time, treading water, or as this quote suggests, just just existing rather than living. And similarly, um, early stage prisoners very consistently reported feeling that they had virtually no control over their lives. Um, We get a sense of that in these quotations, that this sense of powerlessness was felt um, very sharply in relation to the general lot of liberty, the sense that staff held power over them because staff had the keys. So this this phrase about they've got the keys um, is is there, I think, in the first and the third quotes. And so ultimately these prisoners, um, they couldn't get beyond the fact that their lives were primarily and directly determined by other individuals, um, that, that, they, that ultimately they were just constrained. They were, in, they were in prison. So they were object in space as well as time. Um, and that Yvonne Dukes, in a, in a very good piece of writing about long-term imprisonment, has, u- has talk, talked about liminality, being in a liminal state. This is a, a useful way of describing long-term prisoners. Liminality, though, implies being in transition between one state and another, whereas I think what's being conveyed here is a sense of being stateless, of being nowhere. And the congruence between the terminology, um, the metaphors used by our participants, and Archer's description of fractured reflexivity is extremely striking. So when I read Archer's description of fractured reflexivity, I had one of those quite rare eureka moments. Um, Archer describes the fractured reflexive as a person who is impeded or displaced in their life trajectory. So she says it's like someone who, this is a quote, having learned French then finds himself in an exclusively German culture and is unable to participate until or unless he begins to master the new language. 
again, notably in her 2012 book, The Reflective Imperative in Late Modernity, she emphasises the role of traumatic life events in generating a kind of, um, I guess, a, a mentality that's about everyday survival. And Archer says, fractured reflexives are engaging in a form of self-talk, a form of reflexivity, but their inner conversations are predominantly expressive. So what she means by that is that their inner conversations are emotional and just add to their sense of distress, rather than providing them with kind of guidance about how to move on in the world. So she says they are disorientated about their concerns or how best to realise them, and as a result they are what she calls passive agents. They are people to whom things happen rather than people who exercise some governance over their lives by making things happen. And even the terminology that, um, that she uses, that her interviewees use, are very resonant with the descriptions I've just given. So being adrift, going with the tide, taking each day as it comes, and so on. And so I think all of this conveys the way that early-stage prisoners, profoundly disorientated and displaced, so in a situation where the past no longer seems relevant to the future and the present makes no sense, that these prisoners were swamped by their emotions, unable to think forwards, and were kind of objects rather than agents in relation to time and space. But when they described um, the different phases in their sentences, mid- and late-stage prisoners who we interviewed reflected that um, shutting out the realities of the situation became progressively harder over time. So there was general agreement that, that this took about three to five years. Often this was the period during which prisoners were appealing, so they could maintain the hope that they wouldn't have to serve the whole of this sentence. And others said it was only once they were settled in a prison full of other lifers um, or with a few years of imprisonment under their belt that they could kind of commit psychologically to the situation that they were in. Um, and so as we see in this final quote, there's this sense that as the outside world fades and friends drop away, this becomes your world. And what followed and what I want to spend the rest of my time explaining was a, a process of transition in five main areas that, that more or less correspond to the dislocations that I identified earlier. So adapting to the sentence, so that's adjusting to the fact that your social universe is no longer where it was. Finding means of managing time, shifting conceptions of control. So both of these are about coping with the challenges of the present. Coming to terms with the offence and with who one is uh, morally or ethically. And, and also making the sentence constructive, fi finding meaning in it. So these are adjustments that involve some kind of orientation to the future. And most prisoners reported that after this initial phase of denial and desperation, accepting the situation was essential for psychological survival, that you just have to cope. And um, the, the findings here are quite uh, consistent with what Ian O'Donnell says in his book Prisoners, Solitude and Time, which is about the essential adaptability of humans. So our interviewees tended to say, I never thought I'd be able to cope, but you have to cope. You just find a way of coping. But coming to terms with the sentence meant acknowledging that the prison was their new home and the only place where their life could um, meaningfully be lived. So the key phrase in this first quote is, you, you, just, you, still, you just have to still get on with life. Uh, and it's important to 
Um, it, it's important to note how different this is from what short-term prisoners typically say. So short-term prisoners generally say, prison is not real life, it's just a temporary world that I'm in when I'm suspending the rest of my existence. So it, it's somewhere inauthentic and it's not worth me investing time in building a life for myself in here. Whereas what we see in this quote is prisoners recognising that there's a shift in which they're, they're sort of the world that they're actually living in now is the prison and the outside world is, is no longer their world. So the first prisoner here says, it doesn't matter where you're living, you're still living a life. Life is just the environment you're in. And similarly, in the second quote, the prisoner reflects that this is home now, this is life now, get used to it. And so almost all of our interviewees reflected that after a few years, the reality set in, to quote um, Edward Zamble, that they were persons living in prison rather than offenders doing time. In other words, life just wasn't in suspension uh, perpetually, which is what much of the prison literature suggests, life was relocated within the walls of the prison. So there's, there's this palpable sense here both of resignation and agency. So accepting fatalistically the overall situation, but within that set of rather desperate circumstances, endeavouring to make the most of things. The, the second adaptive transition, if that's the right phrase, was about time. So in contrast to the early stage prisoners, mid and late stage interviewees had found ways of taming their, their anxieties about the weight of time. So they did this partly by splitting up the time ahead of them into manageable chunks, often World Cups. I've got four more World Cups to serve. Or they gave themselves what Ian O'Donnell calls time anchors, so sort of target points in the future. So that would often be that my target point is getting to a Category C prison, so a lower security prison, or getting a certain number of qualifications, but they had points in time ahead of them that they could reach for. And they were also much more skilled at managing time in the present or manipulating time in the present. So often this was through rituals of faith or spiritual practices which enabled them to almost lift themselves out of the present. So sort of transcendental is, a, is the right phrase here. So you could lift yourself out of clock time through things like meditation or prayer. And also when they talked about how they passed their time, so often through things like reading or use of the gym, their accounts weren't suffused with this sense of being marooned in the present or overwhelmed by the present, these routines were self-devised rather than imposed upon them. And that made life tolerable and predictable rather than sort of routinized in a way that was unbearable. And, and so certainly when they, when they talked about time, they were much more likely to describe it as something that could be used rather than something they just had to kill off, that they had to just expend. Third transition was, was in relation to control and self-control. And, and I, we saw a minute ago that early-stage prisoners felt themselves to be almost completely lacking in autonomy, partly because they defined control mainly um, in relation to whether you were locked up or not, whether you were in prison or not. Whereas those who were further on, certainly they recognised the limits on their autonomy, but, um, but, they, were, but they had found... Um, areas of life over which they felt they did have some control, particularly emotions and interactions. So Daniel says, I've got control of certain aspects. 
I've got control in my reactions and how I react to people, how I interact with people and my plans for the future and getting myself prepared and ready for that. I've got certain control over my education and I've got certain control over staying healthy and staying fit, staying positive. So um, their thoughts about control extended beyond this binary condition of um, being kind of locked up or not, or, or being free. And they expressed this much stronger sense that, um, that some aspects of their life could be self-determined. And I guess, again, Ian O'Donnell writes about this, that this is about um, accepting your general predicament and then focusing on aspects of self-control and self-management. The other thing that I want to emphasise here is that, um, that this was about cultivating an ethical self through, through making decisions about... Um, interactions, emotions, and so on. So Foucault calls this moral subjectivation, and Lambeck describes it as ordinary ethics. So seeking to live life well and wisely, being good, doing good in one's everyday actions. So it was important to prisoners to, to demonstrate through their routine dealings with others, so through being courteous and reliable, being someone that could have a good conversation, that these were ways of demonstrating that you were an ethical being in a world that didn't give you many opportunities to do that. And this partly related to um, the importance of resolving feelings of shame, shame about what you'd done or who you were. Lots of our interviewees continued to maintain innocence, but for others, a, a really key part of um, adapting to the present involved kind of moving on from the period of denial um, psychological denial or legal denial and coming to terms with what it means to have been involved in someone else's death. So, um, in this, so you get a sense in this first quote that accepting the offence required a complex form of psychological adjustment. So taking moral responsibility without being psych psychologically swamped by what you'd done. So Julius says he shouldn't have died, his family shouldn't have felt the grief, but at the same time there's nothing I can do I can't carry this burden with me for the rest of my life. And Bernard, in the second quote, um, he's describing the process of um, resolving his guilt as, as a kind of key moment in taking control of his life. And he says, it, it was like I were writing in my own pages of my book now. It wasn't someone else writing them for me. From this point on, I was in control of where I went. And, and most interviewees who, who weren't... Um, denying the offence, said that this process of reconciling themselves with what they'd done was a, was a fateful moment in their life. And, and alongside the murder itself was something that had changed them profoundly. So, so sort of dealing psychologically with the offence and with feelings of shame generated um, quite profound existential reflection about what it meant to take someone's life and to also have one's own life radically changed by being given a kind of life-bending sentence. And so here we, we're seeing forms of quite deep introspection about life and loss and self. John Irwin calls this the, a kind of moral self-inventory. It's like a kind of moral audit of yourself. You know, who, who am I? What, what have I done? Why am I here? And we, we get this list of questions here in the, in the second quote. And, and, there's, and as a result, there's a desire to engage with life productively, to look forwards rather than backwards, and to take control of one's life narrative. And I think these preoccupations help to explain some of the figures that I showed earlier, which were about prisoners' quite loose social ties. 
that when I've, when I've interviewed prisoners in other contexts, not serving long sentences, much of their life, much of what they talk about is the kind of, uh, is prison politics or the informal economy or, you know, instrumental friendships. Whereas these prisoners were, were relatively uninterested in those things. And I think this is because it was much more important to them to be sort of having and resolving these interior conversations, thinking about their individual moral development and thinking about ways of living a good life. And the kinds of reflections I've just showed are like one of Archer's other types. Um, she calls them meta-reflexives. And she characterises meta-reflexives as people who are slightly disengaged from their own families and keen to produce lives that are different from the lives they were or from their own backgrounds, and are rather socially isolated. So they're, they're making life decisions without consultation with other people. She, she says, as a result, they are reflexively preoccupied with themselves. So they're engaged in this constant process of self-examination, self-critique. So she says that the subject is internally conversing about herself and not just about her external actions. And she describes meta-reflexives as being interested in self-knowledge and self-transformation, propelled by a very idealistic sense of ultimate concerns, wanting to make a difference in the world, rather than just wanting to satisfy individual needs. And the, the ultimate concerns for our mid-stage prisoners combined sort of moral self-development and the desire to make the sentence and life beyond it constructive. So constructive for themselves, but also for wider society. Um, in the early stage, relatively few prisoners could see any meaning in the situation that they were in. Um, they, be, partly because they saw the real world as being outside the prison environment. So, um, so Martin here says, nothing constructive can occur because I'm still within these walls. Whereas prisoners who were further into their sentences generally said... I want to achieve something better with my life. I want to make the most of this sentence. Not, and they weren't just talking about... Pick, so they often would talk about education. But when they did that, they weren't just talking about getting qualifications or learning skills. They were talking about wholesale personal change. So making themselves a better person and giving something back to society. And the offence was relevant here in the, in the drive to ensure that something positive emerged from this tragic thing that they'd been involved in. So um, Daniel, he'd had a meeting with his victim's mother and he says that she said uh, that she didn't want two lives to be wasted and that she wanted me to just make sure that my life turned out with something good and not waste it, you know, partly in the memory of her son who died that night and it was like taking a deep breath for a first time. Like when I breathed in, it was like I felt some new life in my lungs. And part of what's really interesting here is this language of rebirth of the past you but not, no longer being relevant and you kind of breathe, breathing afresh, being a new person. And the finding of meaning was enabled by religious faith or spiritual commitment. So belief systems and the practices um, that they entailed functioned across the temporal dimensions that I have mentioned, past, present and future. So they helped prisoners um, atone for what they'd done they help them find meaning and godliness in this sort of never-ending present. They fortified prisoners to um, endure their present conditions by giving them some sense that there was a meaning to their suffering and that there might be a, a, a less painful afterlife. 
They provided answers to these kinds of questions about the purpose of life, um, the consequences of taking someone else's life, and so on. And they also offered a basis for personal transformation. So some prisoners talked about, um, you know, it, it, it's, these things are teaching me how to be a normal, decent human being. That's quite an extreme um, quote, but, but a decent example. Okay, so I want to wrap up now by just discussing some interpretations of the findings and some of the broader implications. Uh, the, the first thing is that the, the findings, I think, call into question the, the tendency within prison sociology for the offence itself to be considered slightly irrelevant. So prison sociologists don't tend to discuss what it is that people actually did and what meaning that might have for people. But we found this to be a really key determinant of the prison experience. So alongside the amount of time to which people were sentenced, the nature of the crime of murder... And for the women in the study as well, the prior experiences of abuse, these were the driving forces of their adaptations. And it's also important to say that these things seem to override the significance of almost all other imported variables. We, we didn't find differences between uh, white and ethnic minority prisoners, for example. So it's as if the... Um, it's as if the sentence length and the offence kind of override... Um, everything else. So, so the, the enormity of the act and the, the sort of severity of the sanction flatten other um, variables, I guess. Second, I've tried to illustrate that there were sharp differences between the adaptive patterns of prisoners in the early stage and subsequent stages of these very long sentences. And I think the most useful metaphor here is tidal. So prisoners in the early stages were, in effect, treading water. That was a phrase they often used. They were being kind of carried in a rather submissive way by the flow of the sentence, or were trying to swim back against it. So their, their energy was spent trying to deal with immediate emotions like anger, despair, and they felt little control over their daily existence or their long-term future. So a bit like Archer's description of fractured reflexives, they were largely passive in the context of their everyday predicament. Their form of agency was um, reactive, backwards-looking. Whereas those further on had come to accept, if I can sort of um, labour the metaphor, that they, that, they were, that they couldn't escape the water, and they deliberately submitted to its flow, but tried to use its energy to their advantage. So tried to use sort of tidal energy, as it were. And we're calling this productive agency. So their focus was in the future rather than the past, and they, their use of the present was constructive rather than depletive. They were trying to do something with time rather than just get rid of it. Driven by a new sense of self and a kind of ultimate concern with being good, doing good, living a good life. Um, and this brings me to the final point, which is, um, which is about the impact of long-term imprisonment. And, and I mentioned earlier that um, problem severity diminished with sentence stage, uh, and prisoners at later sentence stages reported higher levels of emotional happiness, uh, maturity, and so on. I really want to emphasise the importance of not taking those um, results at face value. That's partly because of research on the post-release outcomes of long-term prisoners. So um, Liem and Kunst have recently argued that, or, or demonstrated, I guess, that, that long-term prisoners on release exhibit the characteristics of what they call um, post-incarceration syndrome, 
very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, Marguerite Schinkel, in her book, Being Imprisoned, uh, that it's just a short passage where she notes that um, the prisoners who, long-term prisoners who had been released described themselves as institutionalised. None of those who were still in prison did, because, of course, institutionalisation is something that you're very unlikely to be able to recognise when you're within it. In other words, what, what might be disabling about long-term imprisonment isn't clear to you when you're within the environment to which you've had to adapt. So if we return to the, the quote that I began with, I think there's a sort of implicit explanatory theory here. Um, the reference to metamorphosis is consistent with what many other prisoners said about the positive ways in which they felt they'd changed over the course of the sentence. So some describe themselves almost as superhuman. So Kelvin says that this place has just been absolutely amazing for me. It's developed me as a human being and a person and an individual and a man and that. And this is consistent with the literature on post-traumatic growth. It's sometimes called post-adversarial growth. So the idea that um, ex following experiences like abuse or serious illness, people often report positive change, an enhanced, um, an enhanced sense of meaning in life. But I want to sound a note of caution because... What many of our accounts implied was a kind of hardening of the self. So a need to build an emotional wall around themselves. And as these quotations illustrate, prisoners often distinguish between what they call prison maturity. <coughs> That's what I mean by when I used the phrase earlier of mature coping. So being well adjusted to the prison environment, these structural um, features of scarcity and loneliness and insecurity... They distinguish between that and um, having deficits in terms of social maturity. So Victor says, maturity-wise, yeah, I've grown up. I'm more rational now. I'm more aware of the consequences of my actions now. I feel more stable. But you've got one part of me that feels like I'm still 17 because that's the age of coming in. And I had no life experience or expectations in life. And I've never had to pay taxes or nothing, really. And similarly, Nathan says... Um, I'm immature in certain areas and I'll always be immature in prison because it's the outside world that would help me mature. We say, what are the areas where you feel that you're immature? Intimate relationships, friendships, stuff like that. So just to return finally again to the starting quote, prisoners worked on and transformed their personal identities and their orientations to the world, their sense of the future, but they, they did that within the chrysalis of the prison with limited resources and outside normal structures and frameworks. So, um, so Dan says the outside world rushes on. And they, they felt that they had been deprived of normal adult milestones and markers of social achievement, often family life, uh, learning to drive, things like that. So in terms of their social maturity, their lives felt on pause because they hadn't experienced normal rites of passage or responsibilities or relationships. So to return to Archer's terminology, they, they could reflexively engage only within the structures in which they were in, located. Unlike her description of meta-reflexives, and this is important, they couldn't just move on at the points at which they became disappointed that life didn't meet their ideals. They couldn't change career or up sticks. Um, uh, or, or at the point of personal reawakening, they couldn't move on in their life. They had to adapt to two worlds at once, the overwhelming structure of the prison to which they had to adapt in order to survive and the vague world of the future 
for which both their present and their past um, uh, guidelines for action were irrelevant. So that is where I think the metaphor doesn't quite work. I spent a lot of time rereading this letter because whereas the, the butterfly emerges from its chrysalis perfectly adapted to the environment, I'm much less optimistic that long-term prisoners, despite the positive descriptions of their personal development, emerge back into society well-adjusted to its demands and requirements. Uh, I'll stop there. Thank you very much.